Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness, back with episode 27 of the March of History podcast. We left off with Caesar's debacle of a first attempt at a full-out assault on the Helvetii. He was all in position. He had an ambush plan for them. He had his right-hand man, Labienus, waiting on a hill right behind the Helvetii ready to ambush them when his army confronted them from the opposite direction. But one of his cavalry scouts, a distinguished veteran, rode up into his camp as they were marching, or really as they were marching towards the Helvetii, and told him that Labienus was not where he was supposed to be, and that the hill was occupied by Helvetii instead. This turned out to be false information, but Caesar felt that he had no choice but to act on it. And he aborted the attack, and the whole thing was a debacle. Caesar in the commentaries blames this poor man <laughs> that is remembered for nothing but this big mistake that he made. But the guy did, he did screw up pretty bad. Then Caesar realizes that really his top priority should not be defeating this army, the Helvetii, but turning and finding food because food is due to his troops in a few days and he has no food to give them. So he makes a beeline for one of the Idoe's most wealthy villages or towns and the Helvetii seeing this turn and follow him and that is where we left off or we're close to where we left off last time so we're going to pick up now a little bit before we, where we left off last time where Caesar as he's being pursued by the Helvetii they're attacking his rear guard with their advanced troops just like he was doing to them a few days ago but he's not one that likes to run from the enemy so he stops his troops, he posts them up on a nearby hill, he begins to organize them. In the meantime, he sends out his cavalry to fend off the enemy and buy him time to assemble his army. Now while his cavalry are out fighting the enemy, or at least distracting them, he lines up his four veteran legions halfway up this hill that they're on. Because remember, he has four veteran legions that have been in existence for quite some time, and two legions he recently created and are brand new. You know, they have training, but they have no experience in actual war. And Caesar does not trust these troops yet. So he has his four veteran legions line up on about halfway up the hill, and then he has his two freshly minted legions, along with all the auxiliaries, who he also doesn't trust. Those are the allies uh, from various Gallic tribes, and I think Dumnorgs has already proven that they cannot always be trusted in his previous cavalry route incident. But he has them along with his two freshly minted legions positioned at the top of the hill. So they're still visible. It still creates an imposing figure of all these men all on top of the hill. And he places these freshly minted legions with the auxiliaries next to all the baggage. So that way the veterans know that their packs are being guarded while they're fighting. This will give them more of an ease of mind as they fight knowing that their personal belongings are protected. Now, all of this is smart thinking for multiple reasons on Caesar's part. One, he's absolutely right. The new legions can't be trusted. It's been seen throughout Roman history and throughout history in general that fresh troops that have never been to battle are not the ones you want to rely on to win you a battle. You want to deal with the troops that have experience and that can be trusted. So it's best to let them watch the veteran legions at work firsthand and learn from watching them before they're thrown into the absolute crucible that is war. And the veterans, like I said, will fight better knowing that their personal belongings are being guarded and are not at risk of being stolen by the enemy. 
Plus, these fresh legions, in the case of an emergency, can always be thrown into the fray if things are really going bad. And the four veteran legions Caesar deploys in the standard three-line formation. This was typically with the youngest men of the legion in the front, the men in the prime of their youth, meaning that perfect combination of youth and experience, are the second line, and the third line is filled with grizzled old veterans that have many years of campaigning and many years in the legions, and they're withheld for emergencies because they are the ones who can most be depended upon to save the day in the case of an emergency. Now, all of this preparation of getting all these soldiers lined up, getting their packs in the right place, getting their armor on, getting their shields out, getting their swords out, getting their spears ready, all this probably takes hours. And this is why he needs the cavalry to fend off the Helvetii as he deploys his army. But eventually, or inevitably really, the Helvetii chase off the Roman cavalry and pursue them to the hill where Caesar and the infantry are waiting. Here, the Helvetii now begin to concentrate their forces at the bottom of the hill. Now remember, they had entire families with them, and they end up lining up their wagons at the bottom of the hill in kind of a line or a circle behind their assembling army. Now all of this, them assembling, would have taken even more hours. So just put yourself in the shoes of whether it's the Roman or the Helvetii soldiers, Imagine the nerves of just sitting there and waiting in full or partial armor, waiting hours to either kill or be killed in bloody, confusing hand-to-hand combat. I mean, if you go to accounts from soldiers from the Civil War or from World War II, they always say that there is nothing like hand-to-hand combat. It's just such a more brutal form of combat where you're looking at somebody in the eye as you kill them or as they attempt to kill you. I even have read that while bayonet charges were common in the Napoleonic era, only, what, less than 50 years later, by the time of the American Civil War, bayonet charges were largely not ceremonial, but if one side got up the courage to charge the other side with the bayonets, typically the other side wanted nothing to do with it and would take off running. Because just hand-to-hand combat, the idea of fighting with somebody with your hands and trying to kill them, or if you lose your weapon, doing it with your hands, is terrifying to most people. Well, back in Roman times, that was the only option. This option that soldiers of modern times, from the accounts I've read, because I'm not a soldier, find to be so terrifying, and for good reason, was the only option in the ancient times. It was all hand-to-hand combat. It was all rolling in the mud and stabbing people who were right next to you. You can see their blood. You can see their eyes. You can see them dying. You can see your friend next to you dying. This is a hellish atmosphere. And you are just waiting for this for hours and hours and hours, standing and watching them assemble, watching your others, your other friends assemble, assembling yourself, and then just waiting and waiting and waiting. Talk about the calm before the storm. Now, Caesar does one more extremely important thing in preparation of this battle. And this is one of those early actions that I referred to that builds trust between him and his common soldiers. You see, he personally dismounts from his horse and sends it to the rear, or as he says in the commentaries, sends it, quote, out of sight. He then orders all of his officers to dismount from their horses and to do the same. 
Now, back in episode 13, we talked about Catiline doing the same thing before his final battle where he fought to the death. And Spartacus, in an even more extreme gesture, slit the throat of an expensive war horse he had taken from a Roman general before a major battle that he went into. And all of this is to show the troops that, hey, I have no intention of running. A horse made you more mobile, but it also made it easier if things were not going well for you to take off and escape with your life. Caesar, by doing this, same thing with Catiline, and especially with Spartacus slitting his, thro- his horse's throat, the poor horse there, are signaling to their troops that, hey, running is not an option. My fate will be the same as yours for good or for bad. And there were pros and cons to this. The pros were that the ordinary soldiers knew that their commander and the officers in this case had no option of fleeing on horseback, as I said. The danger, as Caesar says in the commentaries, would therefore be equal to everyone. That was his goal, he says in the commentaries, that he wanted the danger to be equal to everyone, and he wanted there to be no option of fleeing. This also boosts the legionaries' confidence and shows them that their leaders are feeling confident in their battle plan. And all of this combines to boost the morale and the confidence of the soldiers in their situation and in their leadership. And perhaps most importantly, this kind of public display of Caesar standing with his soldiers, literally standing with them and being willing to die with them if things go bad, lays the foundations of true long-term trust between commander and soldier. We are literally witnessing the foundations of that legendary bond between Caesar and his soldiers being built before our eyes. And later, we will see Caesar's soldiers repeatedly go through extraordinary hardships for him, for Caesar. And it's easy to see this and wonder, why? Why are they so devoted to him? And the answer is instances like this, where Caesar puts himself on equal footing with every one of them. And it's possible or even probable that none of these soldiers had ever seen their commander dismount before a battle, never mind order all the other officers to do so as well. This must have made a massive impression on the ordinary soldiers. And in fact, this is the only battle in Caesar's entire life where he does this. From then on, he will always be on horseback. Because yes, this boosts the troops' morale. Yes, it makes them more confident. Yes, it shows that he's willing to share their fate. But there are cons to it. And one of the main cons is that once you're off horseback, it limits the general's visibility. No longer can he see over the heads of his soldiers and have a better idea of how the battle is faring and where reinforcements need to be plugged into each line. Being on foot limits that ability to see. It also limits the commander's mobility. Like, yes, it limits his ability to run away. If, if that's the commander's goal, but it also limits his ability to ride on horseback around the battle to each area that is in distress and to encourage the soldiers to take personal command of areas that are dangerous, to plug in reinforcements. On foot, this is near impossible. He's just on the same level, level as his soldiers. I mean, granted, they're on a hill, so maybe he has some better visibility, which helps him. But in general, you're not, you're not seeing as much on foot and you're not able to get to the problem areas quickly. There's definite downsides. And after sending away the horses, Caesar then speaks to and encourages his soldiers. He gives them one last speech before the battle, to get them fired up, to get them believing in themselves, to get them comfortable with him as their commander. 
and to lead them into the coming battle. But by looking at the pros and cons of the decision to dismiss the horses that Caesar makes, the only one that he makes in his entire life, we can see that Caesar dismounted from his horse before the battle specifically to boost the confidence and trust of his soldiers, even though it hurt his ability as a commander. In other words, him dismissing the horses helps the soldiers' confidence, helps their bravery, but it hurts his ability as a commander. But he's willing to do that because to him, he's showing them they are more important than his own comfort. Now, by this time, you know, by the time he dismisses the horses and gives his whole speech, the Helvetii have formed up into a phalanx. If you don't know what a phalanx is, it's basically when all the soldiers line up close to each other, put their shields in front and over their heads, or at least in front of them, and make kind of a, a shield wall so that swords and arrows and spears can't get through, or at least have a difficult time getting through. And they begin to march up the hill to meet the Romans. This all happens at about one in the afternoon. Now, we don't know how many soldiers the Helvetii had at this point, but they were spread out enough as they traveled that soldiers are still arriving as the battle is beginning and as it continues. There are still groups of soldiers arriving and joining. And as the Helvetii get closer to the Roman legionaries, the Romans unleash a shower of javelins down the hill onto the phalanx that the Helvetii have made. And Caesar says that these javelins pinned many of the Helvetii's shields together, or at least if they didn't pin two together, they weighed them down, made them extremely heavy. And the Helvetii were unable to remove these javelins, which are called pilum, because they're made of a softer iron and they bend after impact, or at least in this case they bend it after impact. And Caesar says many of the Helvetii soldiers spent a lot of time shaking their shields, trying to get the spears out, and unable to do so, many of them ended up just tossing their shields aside altogether, rather than fighting with a giant heavy spear inside of their, you know, put into their into their shield or, or having their shield pinned to their buddies next to them, they just tossed the shield aside altogether. And as a result, their phalanx, this wall of shields they had built up, is largely broken up. And this was standard Roman procedure on how to break up a shield wall. You would soften up the enemy by throwing spears at them, and then you would charge them with your sword. And sure enough, once the phalanx is broken up, the Roman troops draw their swords and charge down the hill at the Helvetii. The Roman legions fight hard, and they begin to win the fight. And eventually the Helvetii begin to retreat after Caesar says they were, quote, exhausted by their wounds, end quote. That's from the commentaries. And the Helvetii retreat to another hill about a mile away from where the original battle was taking place, and they begin to reform there. And the Roman legions follow them to this new hill and begin to march towards them. But as this happens, the Helvetii rearguard, composed of about 15,000 men from allied tribes, so not from the Helvetii, from tribes allied to the Helvetii, suddenly shows up and strikes the Roman army on their right flank. Now Caesar refers to this right flank as their, quote, exposed side. And the reason why he calls it this is because they would hold their shields in their, in their left side. So the right side is their exposed side because they only have a sword on that side, no shield. And Caesar even goes as far as to say that this new rearguard force surrounds his veteran legions. Because remember, the, 
The newer, freshly minted legions are still sitting on the hill watching all this happen. This is just the four veteran legions fighting. Now the Helvetii that had retreated up the hill turned back and saw this. And they saw that their comrades were fighting and, and on the offensive again. So then they turned back around, they formed up, and they rejoined the battle. The Romans turned and advanced against the Helvetii in two divisions now. The first and the second of the three Roman lines faced the Helvetii, who had been driven off originally and who had now rejoined the battle. The third Roman line, the one composed of veterans, turns and faces the rear guard of the Helvetii, the two allied tribes. The battle continues fiercely for a long time like this. And finally, the Romans are able to get the upper hand in the battle again. And the Helvetii retreat back up the hill where they had originally fled to. And the Helvetii rearguard, made up of the allied tribes, retreats to where their baggage train was. Remember, they had lined up their wagons at the bottom of the hill when they first started battling the Romans. Now, at this point in Caesar's narrative and the commentaries, it seems the bulk of the Helvetii retreat from the battle altogether. So they go up on that hill, and it seems that in good order they leave the battlefield. They're not running like chickens with their heads cut off. They're still organized, but they've decided they don't want this fight anymore. Though, in the commentaries, it's interesting. Caesar specifically says that from one in the afternoon when the battle starts until the evening, the Romans did not see a single Helvetii soldier turn and flee from the field of battle. Now, this is an interesting compliment coming from their enemy. And that's also what leads me to believe that they must have retreated from the battle in good order if he says that he never saw one of them run. However, that rear guard is still in the battle. They're still there. They're made up of two tribes called the Boii and the Tulingi. And these two tribes continue to fight in the midst of the Helvetii baggage train. They formed up the wagons into a makeshift wall and began throwing projectiles and spears and rocks and, and, and who knows what else down at the advancing Roman army. And this fight continues well into the night until finally the Romans take the baggage train and defeat the last of the Boii and the Tulingi. This was an absolutely exhausting battle for the Romans, and it was certainly baptism by fire for the legions and for Caesar as a commander as well. This was a close-rung thing, and yes, they won, but they received many, many casualties. And so they were, I mean, I wouldn't say lucky to get out alive, but this was closer than they would like it to be, and closer than future battles or many future battles will be for them. But it's quite a learning experience. But that is where we're going to end for today on the March of History. But before I actually end the show, let me say a few things. You'll remember from last time, actually probably by the time you're hearing this episode, I am currently in either Cadiz or Malaga or Granada, seeing lots of history, hopefully posting on the Facebook, on, I say the Facebook, I mean the Facebook page of the, of the March of History, posting on Instagram, on Twitter. So let me go ahead and give you those, and hopefully you're following along with that and seeing all that cool Muslim architecture that is unique to Andalusia and, and learning some history from that and, and getting some ideas of places that you might want to travel to to see history. So that is the Instagram is at the March of History. The Twitter is at March underscore history. The Facebook is the March of History. The email, if you want to reach us, is the March of History at gmail.com. We would appreciate it if you would follow any and all of those. 
please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store if you're enjoying the podcast. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who enjoy history and enjoy Roman history especially. And don't forget to subscribe to wherever you listen to the podcast so that you can get notifications when we release new episodes. But that is it for today. We're going to end on a high note, or at least a high note for the Romans and Caesar for you know having won that battle against Helvetii. Not such a high note for the Helvetii, of course. But we're going to end there for today, and we'll pick up with the aftermath of the battle in the next episode of the March of History. 